This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Traveler for Accountants. The Apes of Gibraltar. Jules Duanel. And The Other Side of the Wind. Cogs and Commissars is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's a clever card game of glorious robot revolution, where players control the means of production. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to check out immediately. For the motherboard. To promote the game's release and support friendly local game stores, Atlas Games has a special promotion. If you buy Cogs and Commissars at Brick and Mortar Game Store and send selfie to Atlas, they mail you special Neon Botsky promo card. Botsky joins existing faction leaders like Simulenin, Gorobachev, and the Artificial Style Intelligence. And not a moment too soon. Buy Cogs and Commissars at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash botsky. That's botsky with a Y. Or follow link in show notes. Remember, the revolution will be mechanized. The clatter of dice, the brandishing of slide rules, the horrified screams of PCs dying during character generation tip us off to the fact that we're not only in the Gaming Hut, but a specially anecdotal installment of the Gaming Hut because Patreon backer Robert Dean asks the following. I would like to hear more about Ken and the accountants playing Traveler. Ken has alluded to this on several occasions as an example of what not to do. And as a long-time Traveler fan, I would love to hear about the specifics. Well, first of all, Ken, is it an example of what not to do or just a, a another in the many challenges that we have GMs occasionally face and, and heroically overcome? Well, every one of those players was a delight and a good player. They were not bad players on any metric that you could measure bad playerness. So I would never say don't play with those people individually, severally, or in a group. But I would say maybe don't play traveler with them because they were accounting majors. And that leads to a, um, you know, uh, a, a, I guess it, it's a problem in other games, right? If you're playing Ars Magica with a medievalist, or you're playing Bushido with a, a specialist in, in uh, Japanese uh, literature, or any number of games that have specific subject matter uh, rewards, uh, you will run into the player who knows that subject matter maybe better than you do. And occasionally, uh, for example, uh, we used to play Twilight 2000 a great deal back in college, and uh, being Oklahomans and, uh, for the most part, Republicans, and it being the 80s, good Lord, was there a lot of gun nuttery around that table. Now, yeah, thank goodness it's it's was only in the 1980s that, yes, that was thank true. Goodness. Republicans in Oklahoma, but it was at high pitch. Uh, it, was, during, it was red dawn time. It was red dawn time, baby. And uh, Traveler uh, or rather, Twilight 2000 was a game that brought that out because it very much rewarded every amount of. Uh, of um, a mill spec neepery that you could plug back into the game. So in a way, that kind of subject matter excess is a reward because it's what the game is literally in many cases about. And you would actually have a worse time playing Twilight 2000, I think, if you didn't have like the differences between an M14 and an M16 in your head and have very strong opinions about how much to up armor um, uh, an armored personnel carrier and whether or not a tank should have uh, chelated armor or ceramic armor or whatever else, right? Right, just like running vampire for a group of people who don't like horror or the undead. Exactly, right. Have never seen. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a, a, uh, a Dracula movie, right? And uh, also, in, well, we're still sort of in the in the general uh, part of this before we get into the uh, the anecdotal. The, often, if you have one person in your group who's an expert, you can sort of enlist them, uh, assuming that they are a, a reasonable uh, person. Right. Uh, you yeah. can enlist them to sort of be your, you know, instant Wikipedia. Right. So if you've got a group where there's uh, one gun enthusiast or uh, expert on Bushido, you can then call on them to deliver the necessary exposition and you can ensure that they play a character uh, 
for whom that fits. Right. So, I did know. that in an Ars Magica game where um, uh, it was set in Brittany uh, in Western France. And uh, rather before it was Western France, it was medieval Brittany. And one of the players uh, was a linguist who spoke or read uh, of French, uh, both regular and medieval and Breton, or at least he read Welsh and uh, Irish Gaelic. So Breton was a walk in the park for him. So he became uh, the source for all the Breton lore going all the way back. And uh, he played a uh, an elf or a fairy because it's Artemagica and they're not called elves, they're called fairies from Breton, uh, one of the Kerrigan who uh, went about and, and knew all the stuff. So that was his role. And he got to sort of provide the information about white maidens and uh, all the other fun things in Breton folklore to the players and occasionally to the GM. And that was right. very great because he was a terrific guy and a terrific player. And he could be trusted to use that information to backstop the game and to yes and and uh yes oh my god and and all the other good things that you want the subject matter expert to be able to do right the trick is often and i'm not sure it's going to apply to this story but uh if you have more than one medievalist in your ars monography game <laughs> and then they begin to dispute the finer points with one another right yes. or uh, a man with know, two medievalists is never sure exactly <laughs> as and they so say that that's when uh, you know, the, you risk a, uh, you know, it, it, every moment becomes a potential rabbit hole to, to fall into. Right. Well, this is not that problem because the accountants all agreed on things. They did yes. not argue or if they did, they did it off stage where I didn't have to deal with it. Right. So wh- why don't you, uh, you start with, uh, the beginning of this game and setting and, the scene. Yes. Why, why you decided to run it and, and what the premise was. Cause of course, traveler, uh, at least back in the day needed you to come up with a premise. Uh, to mm-hmm. attach to Traveler. It's right. sort of an interesting example of a popular early game for which there was no obvious core activity. Well, this was the sort of, I guess, default core activity where you play free traders scattering along the Starlands. And because I did not believe in the monolithic Empire of Man, I had divided it up into the basically the Soleimani and the Villani uh, already although I sort of changed some names and moved some astropolitics around because even then I could see that the sort of the frontier spirit of traveler was getting uh, drowned out in, in the, in the official setting. So I sort of set it on a, on a, on a fracture zone between these two large empires with uh, the Jodani sort of off scene to land on anybody that made trouble. I think I may have introduced the Mercedes from Paul Anderson, uh, Dominic Flandry series as another bad guy uh, to keep everyone on their toes and let them know this is not going to be Traveler from the now, books. You're you're mining a bunch of different classic SF things here, so do you want to footnote those for the uninitiated? Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, the Dominic Flandry series is a terrific uh, space uh, series in which Dominic Flandry plays basically a secret agent for a declining human empire, and the rising bad guys are these sort of serpentine reptilian... Uh, Mercedes, who are obviously going to overthrow the human empire and, and take it over. And Dominic Flandry's job is just to put that off as, as many decades as he can by his actions. And so they were, they were creepy and, and bad news, but they were sort of honorable. Uh, and, and they, you know, it was like being replaced by the, by the, by the Arabs, not being replaced by the Visigoths, right? So civilization would continue. It just wouldn't be our civilization. And so I thought that they made a really good villain and I thought that they made a good, a non-human antagonist uh, for the world of Traveler, which was basically humans uh, back in those days. We, we had the sort of Varger and things on the very far outlines, but they weren't threats. They were sort of cartoon bad guys. And I thought the Mersans would make a, a good bad guy. So they were sort of from the the Z-axis, because again, the, the Traveler map is very two-dimensional. So I sort of dropped them down and had them coming up from the clouds in the in the Z-axis down part of the galaxy. So that was that was how I had it set up. So uh, the players are banking around and the trouble with a game of merchants is that at some point you have to care about money and the trouble with a game that begins by saying you have a mortgage on your starship means you have to care about compound interest. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where you get into trouble or at least where I, a simple cartography major got into trouble because I was running it, as I mentioned for, I think three accounting majors and one business major or something like that. I forget what his major was, but it was maybe poli-sci. It was something like that. And uh, we all had a great time. I mean, they they totally got into it. They they ran their ship well. They had fun on their little adventures. But just 
as night follows day, they would stop and run their bank account at the end of the session. That was sort of their, you know, check for, you know, uh, check for experience or, or, or do your, um, uh, you know, get your spells back type moment was they would go and they would run their accounts. And because I didn't know any better and was just sort of uh, half-assing things, uh, they began to figure out that they could arbitrage currencies, which is the downside between having multiple human empires. They began to arbitrage currencies back and forth. And that is when they completely lost me. And quite frankly, if they tried it now, they might lose me. I know a little more about it now than I did in those, you know, youthful days when I was in my 20s. But uh, I don't know a lot more about it. Jeez, maybe I wasn't even in my twenties yet. Right, because in a in a high finance system, right. with the highest upper reaches of capitalism, the thing to do to make a lot of money is to uh, get a bunch of money and then don't ever go anywhere or spend it or do anything interesting with right. that money, but instead just uh, move it around the finance system. Right, and 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 follow follow uh, even marginal uh, gains, if you can follow them with enough money, that turns into fairly significant gains. And if you can just keep your money rotating, then it can't help but make money. That's literally how capitalism works. So the, uh, maybe I was 19. Anyway, I was very young. But the larger point is that they started doing that because you could and because the game explicitly allowed for banks that could loan you 30-year mortgages on a starship. So the financial system fun- functionally had to exist. And I certainly had to agree that you had to have a financial system for these star empires to work at all. Uh, and, and so they began to build up these you know, large currency arbitrage funds and start buying futures uh, <laughs> contracts in things. And at this point, I can rapidly see the game getting completely away from me. I had no idea what to do with characters who became reclusive billionaires and owned their own planet. Um, so I started an interstellar war, figuring that whatever else that does, it's going to ruin uh, the the uh, arbitrage that they banked on between the two empires. And so I had a rising human power come up and try and start a war, and it was probably backed by the one empire, but they couldn't prove it. And so it, it began by attacking a bunch of planets that they had investments on, sort of cratering their their holdings. And by gum, those they, such good players, and I cannot emphasize enough, they were good players and good people. They were like, well, all right, that threw us for a loop. Time to start arms trading. <laughs> <laughs> and right there in the books, there's the list of all the weapons and what they cost. And so they started extrapolating and say, how many tanks can we buy with our with our funds? And it's like, well, there's a lot of factory planets. They're making tanks. People need tanks. That makes sense. And sure enough, they're building back up their, their money by running weapons back and forth. And then they get wired into the, uh, I guess, basically the procurement office of one of those star empires. And they start getting cost plus contracts and things like this. And it's like, Oh my God, this is happening again. So that's when yeah. the Merseans so, decided. So this is the, the beautiful moment where you go, I'm going to do the classic blow up that shakes up the setting forever. And they just go, yay, yay. more profiteering. More, yay. <laughs> bigger chances mean bigger returns. Yes. Um, and of course, whenever anything went really wrong, they had a starship and they could fly out and shoot up the bad guys that were ruining their, uh, uh, profit margin. And if, again, if I'd been maybe a little firmer on my feet, if I hadn't been, as I say, not an accounting major, maybe I could have stayed a step ahead of them and we could have been running a, a lovely game. I mean, I could probably run a pretty good arms trading game right now if I had to, but, but in, in those days, it was very much, all I could do to to keep uh, to, to keep up with them as they did one after another very clever thing. This and week's so the, menace: stagflation. And so the and so the Merseans, you know, saw that this war was happening and was drawing the two powers in, and they thought this was their chance to to to, to launch another war. And because they didn't have human currency, I'm thinking, well, now we're immune; nothing can go wrong here. Except, of course, <laughs> that the players then begin to trade in basically raw material speculation. It's like, well, they still need bank manganese or whatever. And we happen to know where there's manganese asteroids. So let's start doing that. And it basically was impossible to keep these guys from becoming zillionaires, regardless of what we did in the setting. And so uh, I waited a decent interval and then said, well, looks like you guys have, have won. <laughs> uh, everything you wanted has happened. Good job. What are we going to play next? I suggest Call of Cthulhu. Right. And that was basically the story. Yeah. Cause the, the other alternative would, would be to go, okay, now, you play the working stiffs <laughs> who work for your previous characters. And, uh, uh, guess what? There, you, there's no mortgage on your ship. The rich guy owns your ship. He kind of owns you. Uh, labor relations are not those, the, those billionaires who run the galaxy now, they're the worst. They're and you have to worst. work for them and you have to go kill people for them and, uh, keep the, the gears of 
uh, capitalism greased with the uh, with the blood of the with the blood of aliens. Yes, or just inconvenient people between them and more money. Which yeah, they 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 might have even gotten into, but I just uh, I had had enough of games yes. where uh, knowing how uh, selling short worked was a uh, was a boon. And so I, I, I fled back to the peace and safety of the 1920s, where if you speculated in the stock market, everyone knew it was going to uh, turn bad on you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's the worst thing you can do to accountants is put them in 1928. Yep. <laughs> and so how long did that wind up uh, uh, going for before uh, the inevitable reality of uh, uh, compound interest uh, landed on you? I think it probably ran for about a year. I think it was mostly my sophomore year in, in college that we played that. Um, I was still driving back to Oklahoma City every weekend and playing Call of Cthulhu with my old group, uh, most weekends anyway. And so, uh, we played that probably, you know, either once or maybe twice a night or twice a week, uh, during my sophomore year. So that was a, that was a lot of good sessions. And, and again, every so often, you know, they'd be like, well, these pirates are really bad for our bottom line. We have to go hunt them down. And I'd be like, yay, hunting pirates. I can do that. Right. And, uh, uh, finally, uh, I guess that, that impulse, the desire to uh, play that sort of game, turned into Eve Online. You could find all the accountants all around the world and get Absolutely, them all together. Absolutely, yes. Very globally successful accountants, many of them. Uh, you know, ca- captains of industry and whatnot are, are playing Eve Online, even as we speak. And yeah, if you are into that, that is the thing that you're into. And now, of course, there's lots of automatic tools that help you do it, even if you aren't very good at it. Um, uh, and you can sort of keep up and, and the computer will manage your finances for you and you don't have to know one thing or another. And I guess yes. the, com- the computer will also introduce interstellar wars and maybe even Mercedes. I'm not sure. The, but, but at any rate, it's a, a massive, uh, AI that has to uh, worry about all the accountants instead <laughs> yes. of you. Right. Which is a progress by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, well, that's, that's the rise and fall of your uh, personal space empire. Uh, so I think, uh, we should grab, uh, some manganese and see if we can sell it on the other side of this commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? Dark clouds of a gathering storm appear over Europe. The drums of war sound. And the only thing between the Allies and absolute defeat are a group of monkeys on a rock. Well, actually, they're apes, but I said monkeys because the word monkeys is much funnier than apes. It is. But we're in the history hut uh, at the behest, can of a Patreon backer Joe Latrell. And his question is, we know that the ape colony on Gibraltar and therefore British rule was saved in the 1940s. The real question is, what is the presence of those primates on that rock really holding back? And of course, by we, uh, Joe means uh, himself. Right. And uh, you and I can, because we've researched this. But for the benefit of our listeners, you want to give them the uh, the basics on uh, the uh, apes of Gibraltar and why they matter. Okay. The apes of Gibraltar are actually the Barbary macaques, uh, for people who keep track of specific apes. And I know that there are some. <laughs> 
Um, uh, ape specificity is very important on this podcast. Ape specificity. Uh, the Gibraltar uh, apes um, probably traveled there from Africa. Uh, they are probably not European apes. They are probably African apes that got to Gibraltar somehow. And whether they got there because the Moors brought them or because the Phoenicians brought them or because they just showed up somehow, rode on boats. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, they were there when the British got there, and the British got there in 1704. We're bearing the lead if, if apes had their own boats, but continue. Yeah. Well, you know, you, they're very smart. And we're going to learn a lot of things about the apes as we go. Um, so the apes, uh, they were on Gibraltar when the British got there, and for some reason, and let us not assume that it was an immediate conflation of the hated British with uh, hideous loud monkeys, but uh, <laughs> it became legend that when... Gibraltar f- would fall when the apes were no more. That as long as the uh, Barbary apes lived on Gibraltar, so too with the British. And again, uh, this is the British's legend. I didn't make it up. I might not spread it around if I was a particularly monkey-like imperial conqueror. Right, because you, uh, you know, it's challenging enough to tie the fate of your nation to ravens at the Tower of London. The, tower. The, the British have a lot of very desperate animal needs, I, you find out. <laughs> yes. But at least, you know, you can, ravens are, are native and you can, you know, you can raise them and everything. They're, and the, they're, the ravens of the tower are, you know, they have a, a maintenance staff and people look after them. And if they're looking sickly, you know, there's a hunt for more ravens and more ravens are discreetly introduced. But here you've got a wild population of animals uh, who have been cut off uh, for centuries from the main population of their species. And uh, uh, dwindling is something that they have done on several occasions. And there's a, another dwindle in the late 60s, yeah. if you uh, do a search for this. And the, and the main uh, blowback of that is that the, the uh, British official wrote a very naughty uh, a poem that today would be considered extremely offensive uh, about this uh, and shared it with uh, the, the Home Office. Uh, ho 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 British ruling class. But here, uh, it was deemed in the, in the middle of the forties that if they lost, uh, the ape population on the rock, that, uh, this would be bad for propaganda purposes. At so Churchill least. personally, uh, intervened to make sure that the, uh, the ape population, uh, was restored. And one of the problems is that there was a, a bad ape. There was Tom. Tom the ape was, uh, leading the other, uh, macaques astray. That was Tony the ape. Uh, in, invading people's homes and, uh, you know, he committed a string of break-ins and, and murders. uh, yes. And, uh, the residents didn't much care for that. And, uh, and so first of all, I think that we can begin by assuming just as an, an obvious thing that, and I'm going to pronounce it this way for this segment, cause we're talking about Churchill, that obviously Tom was a Nazi. Yes. And, and th- th- that was his real name and he just used Tony as his cover name. Oh, right. Tony. Yes. Yeah. Apologies uh, to all the Toms and Tonys out there and, and all yeah. of the aides. But anyway, as a Nazi ape, obviously, and we've seen from Indiana Jones and from Raiders that Nazi apes are absolutely a thing. We also know that the uh, that the Kaiser was trying to breed man apes in the Canary Islands uh, back in the 19 aughts and uh, that there was uh, German man-ape experimentation going on, just like there was Stalin man-ape experimentation. I believe we covered that in depth during our Stalinist man-ape episode. So the Kaiser has got a, a program of, of German uh, nationalist apes uh, going on, and those apes probably uh, infiltrated the Gibraltar under the guise of Tony, even though their name was actually Tom. And that they were Nazis, as you say. Uh, well, yes. If, if you're a Nazi, you do need a number of cover identities. Right. And then uh, the the good news is that uh, the the SOE or the MI6, I guess it would be MI5 on Gibraltar, was uh, up to the threat. And Tony was executed by British troops in November of 1944, which by then would seem a little late to worry about it. I mean, November of 1944, come on. Maybe Montgomery was in charge, and that's yeah, why it's so damn Yeah, but they interrogated Tony. <laughs> right. They had, they had to get, they had to get him to <laughs> they talk. They knew him. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to bring in a, a sign language specialist to get him to talk. Yeah, and it was all just German obscenities. So. <laughs> right, yeah, so they were like, this is actually a waste of everyone's valuable time. We could have built another aircraft carrier for this money. Sometimes a Barbary macaque <laughs> just needs killing. That's, it does. That's if, all, if, if they go bad, it. that's what they yeah, do. This one certainly did. He, he was a Nazi, for goodness sake. He was a Nazi. The governor of uh, Gibraltar, named Thomas Ralph Eastwood, um, tried to cover for Tom 
AKA Tony. So I suspect that he was probably no good either. Um, uh, and, and so that's why Churchill had to intervene personally is because the officials on Gibraltar were trying to cover their butts on this uh, whole Tony situation. So, uh, we've revealed uh, Tony as a, as a spy. Was there, is there something else going on on a, on a leptonic basis? Certainly Gibraltar has, uh, your basic set of uh, ghost stories. And so there's some elliptony going on there. The former convent that is the uh, governor's, uh, uh, residence is, is haunted by a gray lady and there's, uh, there's ghosts in the hospital and, and even, and while this is happening, there's tunnels being built in Gibraltar and, uh, the soldiers in those tunnels will, will later themselves become ghosts. I don't know if Tony is responsible for that. And there's also a legend, uh, that there is a tunnel, a secret tunnel from Africa to Gibraltar. And that may have been, uh, how the, the Nazi apes or at least the Lemurian apes got there. Uh, in the first place. Um, I, I think that probably if I were to guess, I would say it's Lemurians that are behind all this because you've got a, a big rocky mountainy thing. You've got apes, which are basically lemurs. Um, so I think you basically got a, a Lemurian situation. The Phoenicians were there. We know that the Carthaginians, it was supposed to be one of the pillars of Hercules. So Hercules demigods are there. It's got a lot of magic, uh, uh mojo. Uh, going all the way back. Um, uh, Neanderthals lived there like 50,000 years ago. Uh, so it's, they were probably summoning up the Venus of Willendorf, uh, with their Neanderthal magics. And, and so there's all manner of spookiness, uh, including, as you mentioned, the, the ghosts of, uh, Gibraltar, probably, uh, driven by that, um, uh, Tuluric energy. And the Lemurian, uh, uh, Nazi pact, uh, the purpose of that was, uh, who was on top in that arrangement, do you figure? Well, I think each side thought that they were, it was like the J- Japanese and the Germans. I think that the Germans were like, oh, we can use the Lemurians to establish the Reich. And the Lemurians were like, oh, we can use the Germans to, um, uh, overthrow the surface world. Uh, the Lemurians are probably connected with Agartha in some way. I mean, we've talked about the Nazi fascination with, uh, the, the hollow earth and with Agartha. And again, you got a tunnel, uh, underneath Gibraltar that's like halfway to the hollow earth as far as I'm concerned. So the, the, the apes, the good apes, not the Nazi apes, but the good apes are probably uh, because they're, um, they were, uh, they were degenerated Lemurians. And so they were no longer part of the Lemurian power structure. And so they resented the Lemurians and didn't want them to win. And so they're just like, well, we'll just stay here and let the British run it. If we're going to be run by pasty master races with, um, uh, bad attitudes. Let's be run by the British. Right. And so they would certainly, uh, take exception to, uh, Tony arriving and, uh, declaring himself, uh, the, the alpha and, uh, right. And so, uh, the adventure version of this, uh, presumably is you are, uh, Churchill sends you in and, uh, you, uh, first of all have to, uh, you know, chase down and apprehend Tony. And then you, when you inspect Tony, uh, not only does he talk back during the, uh, interrogation, but you can see that, uh, he's no ordinary, uh, Barbary ape, that there's something, uh, uh, other, otherworldly or at least, uh, atavistic about him. And so, uh, that leads you to, uh, uh, then have to uh, sniff out both the uh, inhuman Lemurian agents on the rock and also, of course, the the, the human Nazis who are there as uh, as Tony's support system. I mean, one of the things that you could do this as a game is maybe as a one shot in which you play uh, the actual apes, right? You're um, playing the good apes and you're trying to prevent um, uh, the, the the Nazis from getting a, a, a foothold or a second handhold, as it were. I don't know if they're technically feet. On, on apes, if they're all hands, but you know, uh, they're, they're preventing the Nazis, uh, the, the Nazi, uh, Lemurians from taking over. And you you just start out as a bunch of apes and you have little ape adventures. And then you slowly realize that not only is Tony alias Tom a Nazi, but also there's magic going on and that that's why, um, uh, things are particularly dire here in 1943, 1944, uh, on, on the rock. Right. right? So you, you all get together. Uh, yes, we have to save the British empire again. Where our interests align, they do supply us with all those lovely bananas. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, yeah, that, that's that's basically what they what they got to do is because that's you know say what you want about the British, they are keeping the apes uh, fed. Um, and in fairness, they're 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 entering the apes uh, uh, like their their uh, birthdays and things in the in the military uh, newspaper. So they they get uh, you know apes can be snobs just like anyone else. Yeah. you get in the society page. That's that's a good thing. Yeah, it was before Instagram, so that's. That's yeah. the equivalent of Instagram for apes uh, of its day. Um, and presumably throughout the world, then, there are other Lemurian uh, 
agents uh, posing as or are partially apes who are... Uh, Bigfoot is a classic right there. Yeah. And uh, up in Tibet, of course, there's a, uh, you know, Nazis were going to find the Yeti. That's that's an obvious connection there. So uh, I think we've now uh, correctly explained the real history behind, uh, you know, all that nonsense in the, in the books on the shelves and can now uh, move uh, to the next segment through this commercial. The werewolves of Dacia? They're the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast from running out of space credits by joining such Patreon backers as... Raphael Pops, Drew Clary. Nathan Merritt. Roger Edge. And Anders Moline. Once more, we enter the familiar Greystone, and once more, we forbear to climb the crickety stairway past the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, but instead turn into the Danish modern reception room of the other consulting occultist. Because once more, we are consulting said occultist about an occultist of the Belle Epoque. And when we talk the Belle Epoque, we talk to Robin, and we talk to Robin in this case about Jules Duanel, who was, among other things, a librarian, but also... So much more. Robin? Right. Uh, so also a uh, Game Master character who you can interact with in uh, the Yellow King role-playing game uh, in the <laughs> initial Paris section. So uh, uh, Jules Duanel is uh, memorable because he is the first uh, person in our uh, contemporary era to uh, decide that uh, being a, a, a Gnostic or a Neo-Gnostic uh, was the thing to be. And just as the great thing about the Gnostics is, is you can kind of decide that they believed whatever it is that you want to, uh, wanted them to believe. And as a, a librarian, uh, of that day, there were fewer books in the library, uh, hampering you, uh, from, uh, making stuff up. Yes, many fewer. Uh, but he didn't need to make uh, stuff up because in his late forties in, uh, 1888, uh, he had a vision with an entity, the Eon Jesus. Just like regular Jesus, except even better. Even Eoner. Yes. And so he uh, then, uh, through his uh, meetings with this uh, uh, otherworldly uh, entity, this heavenly being, uh, took on uh, the mantle of prophet. And so he became uh, the uh, founder of the first Gnostic church in uh, in France. And he styled himself a, a bishop. Uh, as the Gnostic Bishop of Montsegur. And Montsegur uh, brings us to the connecting point between the Gnostics and the Belle Epoque, and that is the Cathars, another group among whom it is uh, uh, convenient to make things up because all of their documents were destroyed uh, during uh, during their suppression. Now, I think we've talked about the Cathars 
a bit before, but Ken, do you want to uh, give people a, a brief uh, reminder on on who they were and why uh, someone like Jules Duanel would be interested and in what them. they thought they were doing. Um, the Cathars, as far as we can tell, and as you, you point out, Robin, uh, the documents uh, that they wrote down were mostly set on fire by uh, anxious Dominicans. Uh, they were a uh, dualist heresy of Christianity connected to Manichaeanism, the notion that there is an equal and opposite evil power uh, to go along with the good power of God. And that evil power, the Demiurge, is the guy who created the world and made all the distracting stuff in it that prevents you from getting one with God and getting right with the Lord. Stuff like, you know, women and food. And so um, uh, the evil Demiurge is there always trying to lure you into sin. And so the best way to get away from the evil Demiurge is to live a perfect life and become one of the perfecti. And the perfecti practiced asceticism. Uh, they were probably vegetarians. They certainly uh, restrained from procreative sex. And depending on on who you read, they may have restrained themselves from all of the sex. The Cathars somehow got a reputation for being pro-women, despite this very misogynist theological substrate, maybe just because uh, people have a very hard time believing that anyone who's opposing the medieval Catholic Church could be worse on women than they were, but gosh right. darn, it certainly happens. There, 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 there's an argument, and again... Yeah. Big asterisks. We don't actually know. Yeah, right. <laughs> what, what was going on was that women also could become perfecti, and you can certainly envision a social setup in which, uh, if if there's no sex going on, that the women are uh, free of the uh, regular predations of the men around them and. Uh, could feel uh, liberated by that, especially. And it is certain were... that the Gnostic tradition, broadly speaking, believes in the the notion of a female embodiment of holy wisdom called the Sophia. And so, uh, Jules Duanel certainly said, "Well, if there can be one female embodiment of wisdom, we're in France. There must be lots of female embodiments of wisdom, and those will be our Sophias to go with our male bishops." And uh, since, as you point out, he's making stuff up, he can make stuff up as much as he wants. Right. The Cathars themselves uh, came a cropper uh, by dint of having set up a parallel church in southern France, mostly in northern Spain, and uh, got themselves in a great deal of trouble when the Catholic Church had some spare crusaders lying around. They sent them to destroy all the Cathar infrastructure and uh, destroy as many of the Cathars as they possibly could in what has come down to history as the Albigensian Crusade. And in the year, I believe it was 1244, the last Cathar fortress, Montsegur, fell to the Crusaders and all the Cathars uh, committed ritual suicide, uh, which may or may not have been a sacrament that the Perfecti did at the end of their lives when they're ready to completely sever their ties with the material and uh, bloodlet themselves to death. Or that might have been something made up by later people because, see previous discussion, asterisk, we don't know. Right. But certainly, when they captured Montsegur, they found a bunch of dead Cathars and no Holy Grail or magic treasure or whatever. Again, none of which stops people like Joel Duanel. Right. Uh, because he would say, I don't I don't need to make things up. I have... And I had Eon Jesus The, the power me. of seance. Right. I've spoken to the Eon Jesus, and I can summon shades at seances because... It's the uh, 1890s. This is all all the rage. And so, therefore, uh, I will uh, summon up shades of the past, including the top theologian of Catharism, Gilharbert de Castria. And so uh, he could just ask him uh, what was going on. And therefore, uh, he founded in 1890 the uh, Universal Gnostic Church in Paris. Uh, and uh, so your Yellow King characters can go and uh, sit with his uh, small group of, uh, of loyal seekers. So it's sort of half spiritualism, half Catholic heresy, mm -hmm. and uh, obviously uh, idiosyncratic. And so uh, Dwinell, uh, when you would show up, uh, he would uh, uh, check you out, and he would tell you which of three categories of spiritual being you belong to, because you're either a pneumatic, uh, which... Uh, perhaps conjures a different image than the, than what is really going on, because that meant that you were spiritually advanced, you were full of pneuma, the spirit. Um, or you could be a psychic, and you think, oh, yay, I'm a psychic. That means I can see through walls and predict the future. No, that just means you're in the middle of the spectrum. You can go either way. Um, or he might tell you that you're a hylic, and you're doomed Ooh. forever to gross materiality. Yep, you're a hyle. It's bad yes. news. And now I suspect that... Uh, he would say that when he noticed that you were either skeptical or didn't have any money, but that's me. That's, that's my, that's uh, your cynicism showing through there. And, uh, among the people he initiated, uh, were, uh, Gerard and Koss, also known as Papus, who, uh, 
we have either talked about previously or we'll talk about soon. Yeah, or both, possibly. Or both. And uh, this is where we get into the... Uh, a big theme with a lot of these uh, these people in in uh, the Belle Epoque is that there is a complicated relationship with Catholicism uh, going on, and people who are pivoting from uh, occultism to ultra right Catholicism. Because at this point, uh, the political situation in Paris is uh, very much uh, that the uh, the Catholic Church is is highly aligned with with the right and the hard right, and they're building Sacre Coeur basically is a giant screw you to the left, and they're building it on the site of the ma- of a massacre from the Commune just to rub it in extra hard. So there's a political dimension to all of this as well, and uh, a lot of these people, including Hoysmans, will dabble with the cult, and then they will find uh, their their true uh, Catholicism again, and they'll repent of their ways. And this. Uh, happened in 1895, the year that the Yellow King game is set. And so you can decide in your game that there's some, uh, you know, the touch of Carcosa somehow motivates this. But he uh, renounces his spiritual beliefs and uh, converts back to conventional Catholicism. And uh, he uh, writes a book under a pseudonym. His pseudonym is uh, Jean Koska. And he writes the book Lucifer Unmasked. Uh, in which he condemns both Gnosticism and Freemasonry. And, uh, the, uh, other week and we he hangs out with our old buddy, uh, uh, Leo Taxil during all this. Leo Taxil. And he, uh, wrote a book that's sort of in parallel with that. And also as part of that same story, uh, your guy, A.E. Waite, uh, read Lucifer Unmasked and went, uh, John Koska, this is Jules Duanel. And so he copped to that. And, uh, just because no story is ever completely over, in 1900, he pivots back again. He discovers that being, uh, an, a staunch, uh, ultra-conservative Catholic is not as much fun as he thought it might be, especially after, I assume, sales of Lucifer Unmasked probably uh, took down. Yeah. And in 1900, he resumes his uh, bishopric uh, of the Gnostic Church and, uh, I guess, continues on there telling people whether they are pneumatics or psychics or hylics. We should perhaps point out that um, uh, at some point in the 1890s, and I have not narrowed it down, but it could have been 1895. Uh, Jules Duanel became the archivist for the Department of the Ode, uh, which is uh, headquartered at Carcassonne. And you would not be the first people, listeners, to connect Carcassonne with Carcosa. Uh, so perhaps while digging around in the Carcassonne archives, he discovered the original city that had uh, impinged itself into the Occitan during the heyday of the Cathars, and it attempted to um, uh, lay its uh, connections into Earth uh, in that day. And that either drove him into the arms of Mother Church, perhaps, or it drove him back out of the arms of Mother Church and back into the uh, Gnostic world, either as a defense against Carcosa, because the church was helpless, or as a surrender to Carcosa. And that sort of leaves uh, Jules open to your interpretation, I would guess. Right. And so his version of uh, neo-Gnosticism was, uh, of course, idiosyncratic, as they all are. What's the point of having a non-idiosyncratic Gnosticism? If you're a Gnostic, the last thing you want to do is listen to someone else about Gnosticism. That (laughs) takes literally all the fun out of it. It's not a a doctrine about listening. It's a doctrine about talking. It's a doctrine Uh, about telling everyone else. Yes. And uh, in his version, uh, there is an in- the interesting uh, wrinkle in that the uh, the uh, evil god in the dualistic system is the Old Testament god, and the uh, virtuous god is the New Testament god. That's that's a very common uh, Gnostic reading. In fact, is that the there's the love god and the mean god, and mean right. god is the demiurge. Uh, so, was his form of neo Gnosticism then can uh, influential on others, or his uh, he? Interesting as a fun character during this era, but is not someone with uh, influence over later occultists. Well, I mean, I think certainly you have to say that he would be influential on later French Gnosticism, if only because he basically uh, initiated all the people who would start running these orders and whatnot. So he's a he's a big channel for it. Gnosticism in America and Britain comes a little bit out of the French, but I think mostly that stuff comes out of the uh, sort of the, the, the more standard antinomian uh, uh, practices that you get with the various 
crazy, you know, Hellfire Club type people and British Gnostics, uh, such as they are, are going to be drawn in, you know, they're going to sort of go the other direction. They're going to have gotten into the occult and then discover Gnosticism that way. And some of the Gnosticism they discover may be Jules Duanel's Gnosticism, but you don't, for example, generally get um, channeling as a core part of your Gnostic experience until you get so far down the line into your Ruth Montgomery walk-ins that it's hard to sort of put your finger on one specific batch of, of, of source material because it, that, that's post new age really. Right. Cause there's a kind of a divide between the, uh, ritualist occultism and the sort of spiritualist knocking on tables and right. uh, inv- inviting in. Which is very uh, much fans. the American sort of, you know, we don't need no stinking uh, miters uh, tradition. And the British, uh, since they're mostly middle-class climbers who do this stuff, uh, I, I, they, they are not as eager to put themselves back into a bureaucracy, although they have their crazy little golden dawn order. So maybe I'm wrong there, but my, my, my impression is the British Gnostics, but, but it would be a, a British uh, bureaucracy uh, and possibly partially Welsh. Right. Yes. But the British Gnostics don't be listening to French Gnostics anymore yes. than British chefs would listen to French chefs. Uh, so we, we got to the big plot hook already, which is why does he suddenly uh, renounce everything in 1895? That's something that the, uh, your yellow King players can investigate. And, uh, so that's, uh, that's basically your, your Jules Duanel, and, uh, I think we've covered him, and we can, uh, move on to our final segment. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The whir of the projector, the cigarette smoke arcing up through the lights, the buttered popcorn, and the lack of anything sticky under our feet welcome us to an absolute pinnacle edition of the Cinema Hut, or at least very near the pinnacle. Robin, you did not put the brandest, newest, oldest Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind, quite at the pinnacle. And I guess that's what we'll discuss right. here well, in the Well, it's the difference between an A-plus and an A, so I, right. I don't yeah. know if we're going to No, be... I'm not saying that you yeah. dissed The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. Um, but I guess the first thing that we should do is uh, tell everyone that if they're worried about spoilers, first of all, I think it's kind of an unspoilerable movie, but if you want to get the whole avalanche experience without knowing a lot, maybe turn off the podcast and listen yes, to it is, after this is why we Netflix. put cinema hut at the end of the episode uh, as right. as is our want when we're discussing a newer film mm-hmm. that you might have not gotten to yet so you can go and watch it now and then uh, come back and listen to this segment uh so ken you found it utterly transporting and yes. uh, magical and, and wonderful and great it was it was amazing yes so uh why don't you uh describe it a bit for those who want to hear it described and haven't seen it yet. Okay. The the film is a film within a film, and both films are called The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, the sort of frame story takes place at the 70th birthday party of uh, the legendary Hollywood director J.J. Hannaford, who has been in European exile and is trying to return to Hollywood with one last great triumph. And this last great triumph is an experimental art film called The Other Side of the Wind, uh, starring a beautiful Croatian woman and a sort of a pretty boy star who, as uh, it develops, is kind of terrible. And meanwhile, Hannaford is engaging in sort of uh, silverback gorilla alpha male activities with his 
with with his uh, protege who has eclipsed him in Hollywood, Brooks Otterlake. And uh, meanwhile, there are lots of other film personalities, many of them playing themselves, and then people who are sort of manks or stand-ins for other film personalities. There's a, a Pauline Kale character whose job is to ask piercing questions that J.J. Otterberg doesn't want to answer, uh, played by Susan Strasberg, um, basically playing uh, Pauline Kale. Right, which is not actually very Pauline Kale because she was no. a, a critic, not a feature writer. But. Yeah, but that's why you sort of you know put her into the into the movie the way you want to. Yeah, and so the 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 frame story is is filmed in sort of found footage style because. Uh, Hannaford has invited all the media to his party, so it's being filmed by amateur uh, filmmakers, it's being filmed by film journalists, it's being filmed by regular journalists, it's being photographed and shot on 8mm and 16mm and all kinds of millimeter, and... Uh, Hannaford is basically putting up a giant front because as it has become apparent early on in the movie, uh, he's not going to get funding to finish the movie because no one in Hollywood understands it or actually likes it very much. And his world is about to come crashing down. And that is what we see sort of both in the film itself, a very stylized artistic version of a man who is out of his depth sexually. And then a, um, uh, uh, the frame story is a man who is out of his depth, uh, because the, the world has changed around him and he can't keep up and he's old and it's, it's a, it's about age. And of course, it, this is made when Orson Welles is himself exactly in that position, aging out of touch with Hollywood, can't get funding for anything and, um, uh, is basically constantly offending and driving away those closest to him as, as a desperate attempt to maintain his own masculinity. So right. it's got a, a strong autobiographical component, although, of course, Wells denied while making it that it had anything to do with autobiography, <laughs> which is why, of course, he casts his uh, protege slash star is born surpasser uh, as Peter Bogdanovich, um, who is exactly that. Right. Although it turns out when you watch, there's two documentaries that you need to check out in order to get the full story behind the story, which, of course, is all part of a big metatextual stew here. And the other reason he cast Bogdanovich is because he originally cast Rich Little, and Rich Little sucked. Yes, and and and, and also left during filming. Yes. <laughs> because one assumes he got a call from some gentleman who owns some casinos saying, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Come back and play uh, Vegas. Yeah, see, he had some dates he had to go play, but right. his the, or- Orson's story is that he just left. And his story was, I said I would be back. So, right. as always, there are, there are uh, different points of view as if things are being photographed by many right. different cameras. Yes. Um, and so the experience of watching this film now, uh, to, to come out two generations after it was shot, uh, is... Uh, itself part of the experience and is a p- itself part of the dizzying whirl of uh, taking it in because uh, this is uh, truly something that is unstuck in time and it's unstuck in time in a couple of different directions. Uh, so, for example, uh, there are many real life uh, directors and, and filmmakers who are uh, seen in the party sequences talking to one another and there's little moments of them that were boiled down from relatively long shoots. Uh, but uh, of the actors who are or not the actors, but the real life people who are portraying the young guard, the young Turks who are eclipsing J.J. Hannaford, they are now themselves <laughs> dead, as in the case of Paul Mazursky or uh, Dennis Hopper, or are themselves now, uh, uh, you know, Wells's age when that film was shot. And so, uh, you know, you see an extremely young Henry Jaglum before anybody knew who he was. And, and of course, as you point out, uh, Bogdanovich has a featured role and is, is really quite good uh, yeah. because often in the scenes that you're seeing, it cuts between him and Houston. But when they were shot, he was playing them with, with Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that uh, adds an additional, you know, frisson uh, to that. And also the film itself is out of time because, uh, you know, it, went through a digital intermediate process as it was being assembled. Uh, they can't imagine how you ever would have actually cut it together the way uh, Wells wanted to uh, with the uh, physical equipment of the time. But I think the answer would have just been that Wells would have done it all himself over a period of even more years. Yeah. And so it looks like a film that was shot in the seventies, but it also looks like it was, you know, it has a digital element to it too, and is really beautiful and was extremely well shot especially the sort of art film uh, within the film that is basically Orson Welles showing that he could make a better version of Antonioni's Zabriskie Point than Antonioni did. 
which yeah. is cheating by picking by picking Zabriskie Point as your Antonioni movie to beat <laughs> right. and making it twenty minutes long. <laughs> if only Antonioni had done that. And, yeah. and of course, he has the, the the house that he rents to be Hannaford's house is next to the house where Antonioni uh, set Zabriskie Point or ends Zabriskie Point. So it's it, there's a lot of film in jokes within the film, which is itself a film about film in jokes in a lot of other yeah. ways. And many of the actors are people who you are used to seeing earlier in their Hollywood careers. Uh, now, uh, you know, in the uh, time that it was shot, uh, then quite elderly. And of course, now they're, uh, have been gone for a long time. So you see Edmund O'Brien is an, a quite elderly man or the uh, director Norman Foster, who plays sort of the, the uh, kind of uh, dog's body character and is, and is also quite moving or Mercedes McCambridge and, you know, the, uh, B movie actor Cameron Mitchell is, is in it as well. And so there's this, all of these, you know, the actors who you haven't seen forever and aren't used to seeing at that age coming back, uh, uh, from, from the past. And, and for me also, there was an additional, you know, uh, non, uh, textual element uh, that was quite odd because the name Hannaford, uh, is not a common last name. Uh, it has to be my mom's maiden name. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I'm, I'm of the Hannafords. And, and in fact, at one point, uh, he, uh, the Houston character talks about the curse of the Hannafords, uh, which is uh, quite uh, a, little a little bit of extra head spinning for me. Although in my case, the, it's not the Hannaford side that the curse is on with my family. Um, <laughs> and so you can't possibly watch this the way that you would have watched it at the time. But even at the time, it would have seemed to have been a, 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 a capsule. Uh, suddenly emerging from another era and another aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, you you couldn't have watched it then the way that you could watch it then because it's it was uh, even now it's still ahead of its time as a film document. I mean, the found footage element of it, I don't know if it would have been a th- uh, entirely revolutionary in 1976, but it would have been pretty darn revolutionary in 1976. I don't know that there's a lot of collage film like that that's done. Uh, about, certainly by a major director like Wells, uh, at the time. And the fact that it's now mostly used for, um, uh, horror, cheap horror films makes it even stranger, uh, watching it now that this sort of, uh, moment of filmmaking that came and went has been resurrected or rather pre-resurrected by, by Orson Wells is, is a thing. And then the, the art film in the middle of it, even in 1976, that was the shooting at a receding target. People were not making those kind of movies. Antonioni obviously, uh, was pretty much done, uh, making, uh, those movies by then. People didn't make a lot of those. Uh, and the, and the art film itself was sort of in, in destitute, uh, uh, for, a, for a while until, uh, digital cameras got cheap. But to see it now is to be sort of, you know, you're no more out of time now than you would have been if you watched it in 1976, maybe. Uh, because for example, his editing style, I went back and watched Chimes at Midnight after being reminded of it in the documentary. And, mm-hmm. uh, there, the, the editing there is very fast. It's much faster than anything made in 1965 or 75. You would have to wait until Flashdance and the MTV, uh, editing style entering, uh, film in order to find anyone cutting that quickly. Right. Uh, and so, you know, he was already, even while making a, a Shakespeare adaptation with John Gilgood in it. Uh, he filmically was, you know, generations uh, ahead of his time and didn't stop being ahead of his time with, uh, you know, Citizen Kane and, and the films that came after it that he got to make, uh, in, in Hollywood. We should mention also things that are out of time. Uh, the newly commissioned score is by Michel Legrand, who is the only person you can envision doing that because he, uh, is still active today, but his uh, career uh, uh, one of his many careers as uh, a film scorer goes back to the 50s, and he worked with Wells previously, uh, but this was commissioned as part of the big Netflix deal to put all of the elements together, right. and it's got also, you know, he's both a jazz guy and a classical conductor, and so there are classical elements, kind of modernist elements to the film within a film, and then the party is has sort of a big band sort of swinging score that goes uh, really well with the editing, so uh, thank goodness Michelle Legrand is still around. And again, there's supposed to be, that's supposed to be diegetic somewhere. There's supposed to be a jazz combo that's playing, obviously. Yes. And I'm not sure we actually, it's, it's, it's diegetic with a, with a wink because. Right. Yeah. It, it's not a, it's not a 12 piece jazz orchestra playing no. at, at his party. <laughs> um, but it's a great score and, yeah. uh, 
so far not available on on the Spotify. So I hope that uh, that is rectified because uh, that, that's some uh, great great uh, film music. The, the the other thing that's that maybe makes me love this movie as much as I do is that there's by by any rights this movie a should not exist, b should not work. C should not be a a movie, much less, an, uh, in my opinion, a masterpiece. But all of it did. It came together. I mean, it, you, it's you know, in a way, it's simultaneously such an amazing uh, reinforcement of the auteur theory because obviously it wouldn't happen without Wells. It's all Wells's vision. Everyone was trying very, very hard to be Wells. But on the other hand, it literally is not an Orson Wells movie because he only finished like thirty percent of it before he died. He he didn't have a final cut. He didn't do the score. He didn't do a lot of the things that nevertheless come together to make it this immense bigger than the sum of its parts triumph. And so it's, it's just, you know, on, even on that level, Wells is messing with you by not finishing it and making, uh, you know, a, a giant tech, uh, mogul come in with a big pile of money to, to get it done. It is, is just an amazing, uh, uh, audacious feat of history. And you, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, right. it, you almost would have to believe in some sort of, uh, you know, momentum of art that exists outside individual artists to, to look at this movie the way that it turned and, out. And relied on cutting edge digital technology in order to uh, manage the cuts and restore all of the images that have been sitting uh, in uh, reels of film in a, a vault in Paris for a generation being, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hijacked by rights issues. Um, and there, there's two documentaries. There's one that's on Netflix itself. Uh, called they'll they'll miss me when I'm no they'll love me when I'm they'll dead. love me when I'm dead uh, yeah. which is essential but also frustrating on a couple of levels um, mm. and it's more about telling the story of uh, Wells himself and the making of the film and his relationship with Bogdanovich the right. thing that I really wanted and I think you wanted as well was the chunk of the movie but how did you put all of this together <laughs> and that's, then what <laughs> right and that's in a featurette called the final cut for Orson which is has the Netflix logo on it. I found it on YouTube. I'm not sure it was supposed to be on YouTube or will still be on YouTube by the yeah, time you look for uh, it. One of the links I clicked on to find it said, this has been taken down, you pirate. And one of the links I clicked on showed me the thing, and I didn't ask a lot of questions after Oh, so that. maybe maybe there is one that's still actually the proper link that's put up there by Netflix, because that's yeah. the one that gave the information that I uh, really wanted, including right, the, the, the fact that... established the sort of the technical, how did they finish the cut? How did yeah. they match the negative to the work print? How did they score it? How did they... And they didn't still ask the, answer the question that I kind of wanted to know is, how did they pay? Was it just Ted Sarianos walking around with a checkbook? Uh, uh, Wikipedia says it only took $6 million to finish. I don't know if that includes the money that they paid the Iranians. Right. But, uh, yeah, or if, not, if you're the but, Persian film financiers who have the rights tied up, you're going to get Netflix money and be happy with it, I think. Right. Yeah. Is the answer. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. else is going to pay more than Netflix for it. So right. might as well, uh, turn over the negatives. And so speaking of the film being out of time, it turns out that the dialogue audio track was the most degraded element when they put the elements together. And so partially, they, they didn't have the original master soundtrack. Yeah. So they used the audio technology as much as possible to remove the noise from, uh, the existing inferior uh, sound. And anybody who knows anything about sound knows that it's way harder to digitally repair sound than it is to do that with images. Um, but they wound up also doing a bunch of ADR work. So in a lot of cases, they brought in sound-alike actors to uh, dub the roles. I'm glad I didn't know that while I was watching it. And yeah, and, I, and the superstar I think it, I think behind it's helpful to yeah. go in cold. And sorry, we spoiled it. But yeah. um, on the other hand, it really, really works, right? I mean, because the Houston role is played. On audio substantially by Danny Houston, his son, who not only can do a dead perfect uh, imitation of his dad, but is a fine actor in his own right and delivers the emotional side of that performance that he needs and gets the twinkle in Houston's voice that even behind the gruffness, you know, people, when they think of Houston, they think of his sinister role in Chinatown his, his but the real Houston was a, a vuncular and charming as well as as gruff and, which is, and you know the, the magic that Wells wanted for Hannaford as well which is why he cast him yes and so uh you know having uh, uh Danny Houston's voice in there I think is the uh, you know along with the Legrand score is the other thing that's so essential to the the success of that film and I can't 
imagine it working with a, a lesser imitator of Houston. Yeah. The, the, the documentary where they show, uh, in the final cut for Orson, where they show Danny Houston doing his dad's dialogue and watching his dad speak words that he spoke to him back at him is pretty affecting obviously for anyone. Right. And it certainly was for Danny Houston. And he had, the, he had this great, uh, line, uh, where he, where he says, um, where he's sort of explaining why his voice isn't quite the same as his dad's is because his dad smoked a million cigars. And he's, and he says, I remember my dad saying, uh, being asked uh, one time by his doctor, uh, how many cigars do you smoke? And he said, as many as I can. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if you're, if you're looking for, you know, moral guidance from Hollywood, there you go. That's yeah. it. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, Danny Houston remembers the making of that film and remembers, being seen the film within a film, which is, uh, super erotic as a, as a young teenager. So mm-hmm. he, he's had those images in his head his whole life. And, uh, we're <laughs> just coming to the menu. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, the, the sex scene in the car, um, I will say, uh, there, there were some cuts to Orson's first cut. They did not leave everything exactly pristine the way that Orson cut it. The director did a little bit of recutting because when I was there, uh, at, uh, the film fest, uh, we had Jonathan Rosenbaum, who's the film critic for the, uh, Chicago Reader and a big expert on Orson Welles. And, uh, one of the producers, um, Philip, uh, Jan Rimza, uh, and they were talking about the cut and they sort of got into it about why did you cut two minutes out of that car sex scene? And Rimza was like, cause it just, it takes forever <laughs> when you watch it in Orson's original cut and it just stops the movie dead. And so that's what we did. Right. And if Orson had had control of the elements and released it, he yeah. probably would have even turned down a, a shorter runtime than the final version. Yeah, because he was generally not super self-indulgent with that once way. Once again, look at Chimes at Midnight. That is cut tight, tight, tight. So mm-hmm. I'm sure Orson would have uh, been the first to say, ah, two minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, on that case, I think it's time for us to uh, to head on out of this podcast before uh, we're forced to turn our tapes over to uh, uh, Persian financiers and therefore uh, continue our, our own podcast ventures again next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast like it's apes on a rock alongside such Patreon backers as Jacques Duvillier, Neil Dalton, Neil Kaplan, Oren Gashuri, and Peter Williamson. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new design, Cthulhu is Woke. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stop.